Mark Twain is one of my favorite American writers and thinkers, and I overquote him on this one quote, and I'm going to do it again today. The trouble with the Bible is not the bits I don't understand, but the bits I do understand. The trouble with the Bible, to paraphrase him now, to not quote him, is not what I don't understand, it's what I do understand. And Mark Twain thought the Bible was very, very clear. And he was very, very troubled by not a few parts, but by most parts of the Bible. So sort of in the spirit of Mark Twain today, what we're going to do is talk about the trouble with the Bible. Okay? The trouble with the Bible will be our theme this morning. Normally what we do as a church, we're in one book of the Bible. We're studying the gospel of Jesus according to John. We're going to be in the 13th chapter, Lord willing, next week. Um, But what we're going to do this morning is revisit this business about the trouble with the Bible. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. I have no trouble with the Bible. Um, uh, We believe the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. Every little marking in the original text is what Jesus says. But I think what this might do today um, is just remind you of how great the Bible is and how important it is, and why we preach the Bible week in and week out, why we believe the Bible to be true. And so eight troubling statements about the Bible that should actually help you understand it better and appreciate it more. Uh, We've looked at these a number of years ago, I think at least uh, six years ago, so it's been a while, so we're going to be reminded and refreshed today. Eight troubling statements about the Bible. Number one, the trouble with the Bible is that it is always right. The trouble with the Bible is that it is always right. I'm just going to choose Matthew chapter 4 to see Jesus' words regarding the rightness of the Bible. And if you want to go ahead and turn to the fourth chapter of Matthew, you can see that. Um, But we're going to be sort of all over uh, the Bible this morning, Old Testament, New Testament, just being reminded about how significant it is to have something that is true and reliable, trustworthy, The trouble with the Bible is it's always right. Matthew chapter 4. Now please notice what I didn't say and what we shouldn't mean is that we're always right about the Bible. Um, That's a slippery slope, right? Uh, We're fallible, we're fallen, we're prone to wonder, so to speak. That doesn't mean we're always right, but the Bible is always right. It's always true, it's always going to be true. And Jesus himself quotes the Old Testament, so not just the New, and he affirms that it comes from nowhere else than God's mouth itself. And if it comes from God, it's going to be true. It's going to be trustworthy as well. So go ahead and look with me there if you would. It's the temptation of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1 would be the temptation, tempted by Satan like the first Adam was tempted and failed. Jesus is the last Adam. He's tempted and he succeeds. But then do notice there in verse 4, it says, but he answered, it is written, It is written in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So he's quoting the Old Testament. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lots could be said. Lots is meant. A lot of important things there. But for right now, just this morning, and we're going to do this rather quickly, comes from the mouth of God, Jesus says. Quoting the Bible... And then saying that Bible quotation comes from divine origin. It comes from God. Doesn't mean there aren't human instruments involved. Doesn't mean Moses wasn't involved. It doesn't mean the Apostle Paul would not be involved or Matthew or John. God uses human agency. 
Second uh, Peter talks about that. We probably won't go there this morning to see that. God uses people, but ultimate source, ultimate origin, mouth of God. This is Second Timothy 3.16 sort of things. And so it's important that we remember that. And here we are, we, we read the Bible, we say we believe the Bible, this is Omaha Bible Church, but we need to pause sometimes and recognize and affirm as Christians, because we follow Christ, we believe what Christ says, it's always right. It comes from God. Now, let's talk about why this is bad. It's bad if I think I'm always right. It's bad if I'm the author of my own destiny. It's bad if I'm in charge. It's bad if I have a God complex. It's bad if I want to be in charge. Because now I have to be in submission. Now I have to change my views of God. Now I have to change my views of morality. Now I have to change my views of of who knows what, all sorts of things. So that's a rub. It's also bad because I'm a sinner. I violate God's commandments just like you do. And so it's bad because you read the Bible and it tells you everything that's right and everything to do and here's uh, the way to success and you don't do it. It's bad in that sense. Which, by the way, is why we then see we need Christ, the one who's going to fulfill all of the good, true, right commands, even in chapter 4. But it's also really good, right? Because it shows us our need for Christ. But it's really good because think about how, how like in Psalm 19, it talks about the, the, the law of the Lord, using that as another word for, for Bible, for Scripture, is sure. It's stable. It's steady. It doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't change with the winds of time because of different things that happened. No, it, it's, it's sure. It's steady. In fact, the Bible even says it makes wise the simple. It gives us wisdom. Psalm 19, verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That makes it good. I can turn to somewhere other than my feelings or your feelings or your interesting book or someone else's interesting book or someone's philosophy and say, you know, I, I want to go for what's steady and sure that I can know I can count on. Yeah, it's always right. It's always right about morality. Trends come, trends go. We're not always pleased. We don't always know what to do. How do we think about this? Well, you know what? I can tell you this, the Bible's always right. I don't have all the answers to all the questions, but I do find myself telling people, well, you know, Jesus says, this is how it's been since the beginning, a man and a woman. That's true, it's always right. I'm not in charge, I'm not God. I didn't start this religion either called Christianity. But I am a Christian, I belong to Him, and so Matthew Matthew 19 is, is where I have to go for that. That's just one example. It's always going to be right. It's always going to be true. Objectively true. Historically true. Isn't that interesting? The, Bi- the Bible is not like this book of like moral tales. Real people, real geography, real languages, real scenarios. It's grounded in history. It's objectively true. It's not just true where it speaks to me. It's not just true where it speaks to you. It's, it's actually true. That, that allows us to agree. Or Let's move on to another one. 
Number two, the trouble with the Bible is it's always relevant. It's always relevant. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. Not in the seas of change, in the fluctuating opinions of men and women and philosophers. No, it says, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Where God is. Where, where, where Pat can't meddle with it. And maybe trim off the edges. Or maybe make it a little bit softer, you know, sugarcoat it kind of thing. No, it's going to be always relevant because it comes from God and it's firmly fixed, not fluctuating, and it's firmly fixed in the heavens. It's just always going to be true. It's always going to be relevant. And think about this. God hasn't changed. People haven't changed. would make sense that the Bible would be relevant to us. By the way, I should say, before we move on, and, and that's, and I think you, what should I say? Let me ask you. What qualifier should be made? The Bible's always relevant. A lot of you have been Christians long enough to, to know that if you were going to teach this, and if you were going to teach a Bible study or lead a conversation, and, and you were to say the Bible's always relevant, it would be important because of what the Bible itself teaches that you would add a qualifier. That you could stop and say, that doesn't mean it's all equally relevant. Right? Because of things like fulfillments, right? Because of, of types and shadows, looking forward, this is promised or this is given to a certain people at a certain time in anticipation of fulfillment, and so it will look different. I'm not saying that, that that isn't somehow relevant. I'm not saying it's not true, but we would say, here are easy, uh, easy pickings. Or maybe I should ask you, what would be an example? We'll be here all day if I just start calling on you, but I'm asking you to at least think about it. What would be an example? An example would be the food laws for the unique nation of Israel to make them different from everyone else, which we're not a part of. Leviticus 11. No shrimp. My wife would like to be in Leviticus 11. But she likes rabbits, so... No, she doesn't. <laughs> Food laws, unique for them. But then, fast forward, New Covenant Realities, Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision... In Joppa, oh, my wife does like Joppa, one of the coolest places you'll ever see. There, fulfillment in anticipation. And so we enjoy Red Lobster, okay? We, 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 we don't have that anymore. I'm just trying to make a little bit light of it. There are unique historical things that happen. It's all true. We can learn from all of it. A lot of it's pointing to Christ fulfilling things. That's just a little qualifier. It's all given for our instruction in light of 1 Corinthians. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Because God doesn't change and human nature hasn't changed. When God addresses those things, there won't be any difference. 
The Old Testament says you have to be perfect to go to heaven. New Testament says you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Nobody's going to heaven apart from Christ. Apart from Christ and His perfection given to us by faith. Let's move on to the third one. The third trouble with the Bible, if you will, is that it's no respecter of tradition. It's no respecter of tradition. How about Mark chapter 7 with Jesus and the Pharisees? Mark chapter 7, Jesus and the Pharisees. Let me put it another way. The trouble with the Bible is it brings freedom. It brings freedom. Now, how many of you are here today and you have no traditions? This is good. Spiritual mature bunch. We all have traditions. As my friend James White likes to say, the person who's most enslaved to tradition is the person who says they don't have any. We have lots of traditions. There's nothing wrong with tradition. The important thing is we know, know and recognize that it is a tradition. But what happens, let's call it traditionalism. What happens is a preference or a good idea or what was a good practice for a time or a personal preference somehow becomes mandated on others, somehow becomes uh, occupying first place, priority of place. It becomes authoritative and what ends up happening is it eclipses the authority of Scripture. And it happens again and again and again and again and again and again and again. One reason I love to read the history of theology, because a lot of times then what happens is believers come and bring the Bible back to light, to, to shed light on this, and it gets stopped. We're celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this year. Every single conference you could ever possibly go to would be about that, unless you don't like the Protestant Reformation, I guess. One of the major key points for Martin Luther and those who would follow him is this is about freedom. This is about freedom. This is about, this is why Luther's writing was so significant about liberty. We're freed from the oppression of traditionalism occupying first place. Doesn't mean Luther didn't appreciate tradition. It doesn't mean there weren't traditions still involved. Okay, that's a good introduction. I hope you got to Mark chapter 7. Let's go ahead and hear what Jesus has to say here. Mark 7 verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... So we have, notice, there's Jesus, Pharisees, and scribes. Which of those three said they believed the Bible was true and relevant? All of them did. All of them did. Okay, they all would have affirmed biblical inspiration and inerrancy. So just because you believe that doesn't mean you're not prone to traditionalism. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. All seems like a good idea, seems like a good reasonable practice for hygiene as well as ceremonial kind of cleanliness. And there, were, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So this is discounted, fake, illegitimate worship, teaching as doctrines. Doctrines are important. The commandments of men. Here's what I emboldened and highlighted in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God, the clear teaching of the Bible, and hold to the tradition of men. It's, it's, it's eclipsed. It's occupied first place. Good ideas became ultimate authorities and they actually got in the way. Verse 9 says, And he said to them, You, you have a fine way of rejecting. You're good at this. You're sophisticated. You're, you're experts of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You're the authorities. How about verse 10? Underline this. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And they all would have said they affirmed that. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. It was a statement they had, a, a religious pietistic, it's given to God. Okay? Let's keep reading and I'll explain then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God. Here's what traditionalism does. By your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Let's go ahead and close it out. 14 and 15. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Here's liberty. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The problem is the heart, and the heart needs to be dealt with first and foremost, is what he's getting at here. But, but, but let's, let's see this. Oh, the Corbin thing. Clearly the Bible says, love your parents. But... The Jews had figured out a way to really help people to become extraordinarily spiritual. They're going to give all of their money. But then they can't take care of their families. It's that kind of thing. But boy, it's okay because you're doing it in the name of, of you know, ministry. And he's saying, you, you guys have created a law out of this. Maybe it was okay for one person who was able to do this. But then all of a sudden, that preference became mandated, and that preference became what had to be done by others, and it became commandment. And now maybe what was actually a good idea is terrible because it's undermined Scripture. It's great that Jesus takes the Bible in its simplicity and says it exposes traditionalism, and it exposes it as wrong. Oh, the tyranny of human tradition when it occupies first place. The list here could be without end, right? I, I literally don't even know where to start because I just start giving illustrations and then maybe you're not going to think of the ones that you should have thought of. You know, God help us. But the timeless, changeless, always true Word of God has got to be something we continually 
hear and are exposed to and allow our preferences and traditions to be corrected by, molded, shaped. Whether they, certainly church traditions or your family's traditions, preferences, just call them what they are, right? I like that as a dad just to say these are our rules and not somehow bring the Bible into it when the Bible shouldn't be brought into it. When it should be brought into it, it should be. It's just different. Okay, I can't resist one church illustration. And this isn't always nice and neat, but here's kind of a weird example. And I don't sound like the Scrooge. Or Scrooge? Yeah, it's not the Grinch. Grinch stole Christmas. The Scrooge, he kind of stole Christmas too, right? Protestant Reformation happens. One of the things many, not all, Protestants did was stop having any and all church services that weren't on Sunday. Think about that. Think about why. The Bible mandates gathering together, believers gathered on the first day of the week, gathering together, fellowship. Um, we could elaborate on that. It's a mandate. It's not a preference. And, and believers gather on the Lord's day. And so the pastors, thinkers, Christians said, we're going to mandate that because that's what the Bible mandates. But we're not going to mandate any other holy days. Read holidays. Because then we're adding to Scripture and we're putting people under a yoke of bondage. Now remember, they're coming out of Catholicism. They would have holy days be required, mass-taking days where you have to go to church or it is a sin against your soul for eternity. So if it's a holiday, holy day, you got everybody coming all the time. And so the response is, there will be none of that. It will be the Lord's Day requirement. And so... Christmas Eve service? Uh Uh-uh. It's fascinating. Is it wrong to have a Christmas Eve service? No, but see, my my, uh, the more I learn about history, I say things like this. If you're free, Christmas Eve, we'd like to have you come. And you don't catch it, but I just have to tell you, the more you learn about this stuff, you go, you know what, we're not going to make this some kind of thing that must be done. Liberty, okay? No guilt trips. Well, you know, we have a Tuesday program and a Wednesday program and a Thursday program and all of these things, and you'd better be here if you're spiritual, because if, if you're not here, then you... We, we, we just probably did the wrong thing probably did the wrong thing. Anyway. But I won't mention it around Christmas time. But you'll know. I come here, I love it. It's great. It's wonderful. All right, telling you more than you want to know, probably. Number four, the trouble with the Bible is that it distorts our views of God. It distorts our views and our views of God. How about 2 Timothy chapter 4? 2 Timothy 4. 
the Bible doesn't leave well enough alone. And this is, this, this is church and Bible together because this isn't just scripture reading, which we should all do, uh, which is significant and important. But remember, early Christians didn't even have Bibles. Um, this is church and Bible together, but a ministry of the church is Bible proclamation. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, Preach the word. It comes from 3.16. So the word is the scripture. We know that according to context. And here's why the preacher is supposed to herald or proclaim the word. And just so you know, it's not, um, it's not share. It's more than share. It's share with an, with an exclamation point. Okay? Preach, herald. This is true. You must believe this. You must stop believing things that are wrong. You must start believing this. You must stop doing this. You must start doing this. So there's authority involved. Okay? But notice the, the distorting ministry of the Bible in a good way. Tongue in cheek. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So when it's popular, when it's not popular, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So there's this negative emphasis of correction. There's also the positive emphasis that goes on. There's the patient call because this is not going to be an easy thing to do because people aren't going to want to have their views of God and his world distorted. But you need to do it. It's your ministry. Verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It's actually what's good for them. It's what's healthy for them. But having itching ears or, or tick, ears that wanting to be tickled, they will accumulate or heap up or amass literally for themselves teachers to suit their, how about this, their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So myths abound. And our ears always want to be told that we're good and special and unique and, and all these things that aren't necessarily true, whatever your personal preference would be. We're drawn to it and we hold to our little myths. We love our little myths, things that aren't true about God, but we're, we're so holding on to them. And the Word of God confronts all of that, whether it be our behaviors or our understanding of God and His world. The wonderful but troubling thing about the Bible is it distorts our views. It actually wonderfully brings our views into conformity with reality so that we can have health. Health. He uses healthy teaching to bring health to you spiritually because myths are lies. And that's not healthy. Just like when your body lies to itself, you're sick and end up in the hospital. So he's using that kind of imagery. It's wonderful, so helpful regarding who Jesus is, what he's done, how God saves, how to live, how not to live. And think about it. This is a wonderful grace from God. Now, I don't think of it as a wonderful grace from God when the word of God confronts my myths. I like my myths, right? I like my, my, my super strong feelings, the word he uses there. By definition, I like them. They're my super strong passions. I love them. But God's grace doesn't leave Pat in his state of idiocy. Right? God's grace, and Pat's all, oh, just tell me what I like. Affirm me. Tell me more about the bad theology I believe. Right? 
And God's grace, it's grace that comes strongly reproving, rebuking, exhorting. Now we're getting positive with great patience and instruction. It's awesome that the Word of God alters our views. It rescues us from our idolatries, our our self-inflicting hurts. Let's move on to number five. The trouble with the Bible is that it is inclusive. The trouble with the Bible is it's inclusive. Again, tongue-in-cheek. More and more our culture, pluralism, 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 pluralism. And I like to say, tongue-in-cheek, the Bible is the most inclusive book around. I do not know of a more inclusive book than the Bible. I do not know of a more inclusive religion than Christianity. It is amazing. If you turn to Romans chapter 3, you are about to feel included. Okay? (laughs) You are going to be blessed by inclusivity. Okay? If only someone could share this with Bernie Sanders. Okay? So offended that the Bible is so exclusive. By the way, he doesn't even know the Bible's so exclusive. He just thinks that a few crazy Christians think it is. And maybe that's the Christian's fault that we have not done a very good job making clear what the Bible teaches. The Bible is so inclusive. It's amazingly inclusive. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, none. So we're not going to leave anybody out. None, none, none is righteous. Righteous means obedient to the law. Loving God, loving neighbor. None is righteous. No, not one. This is amazing. I mean, by now, this is so inclusive, they might let me speak on CNN. It's so broad. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. See, we don't like the inclusiveness. We say we want it, but when we get it, we don't like it. And now, all joking aside, the Bible includes all of us as rebels against God. No one worthy. Christians aren't worthy in and of themselves. No one. This is, this is not the good guys versus the bad guys. We're all in the state of bad guyness. Okay? The trouble with the Bible is it's inclusive. All have turned aside together. We're we're unified in this. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it means ultimate good, pleasing to God good. Verse 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But then let's drop down to verse 23 for the sake of time. For all, there's our inclusiveness, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all are condemned. But the wonderful thing about the inclusivity there, and again, I'm being serious, that's why the call is there to whoever believes in Christ will be justified. As Romans says, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, also to the Greek. That's inclusive. Everyone is a rebel. Christ is the Savior of all rebels who believe. But this is what makes Christianity exclusive. 
because we all have the same problem, God has provided a unique solution to our problem. And so you must believe in Jesus or you are condemned because we're all naturally in a state of condemnation. And again, we probably haven't done a very good job of making that clear. We probably come off as we're the good ones and everyone else are the bad ones. We won't go there, but this is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, because you have universal authority to Jesus, and so we go to all nations. It's inclusive. This is all over John. I thought what we were going to... No, let's move on. Number six. Number six, the trouble with the Bible is that it is clear. The trouble with the Bible is that it is clear. This goes to Mark Twain's point. Here's a classic Mark Twain text. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The problem with the Bible is it's clear. And it's even clearer in context when you look at the whole of John. Right? No one has seen God ever in His fullness. Ever, 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 ever. There's been revelation, but no one has actually seen God in this unique, extraordinary way. And Jesus comes, the incarnate one, and makes God known. Okay? He is the unique son, the long-awaited son. He is the fulfillment. Everything throughout John is giving us this. And so John 14, 6 comes in, in, in context and it makes all the more sense, maybe it's all the more troubling if Twain read it as a whole book. It's not saying less. It's, it's robust. It's strong. Because of who he is, no one comes to the Father except through him. It's clear. Again, let me ask you, is there a qualifier that should be added? I don't mean a discounter, but a qualifier. I would want to qualify and say, this doesn't mean the Bible's all equally clear. In Second Peter, Peter talks about some things Paul writes are hard to understand. Some parts of the Bible are more challenging than others. Especially if you're reading in the King James and it talks about superfluity of naughtiness. <laughs> what is superfluity of naughtiness? Yeah, that's proof Paul, never mind. I'm just... <laughs> Some things are difficult, but a lot of things aren't very difficult at all. When Jesus says, believe in me and you'll have eternal life, it's pretty straightforward. No one does good, no, not one. That wasn't one of Paul's hard things. That's where I like to say, it means in Greek what it means in English, Right? I don't have that many of them anymore, but I have a fair number of commentaries in my office that were written by unbelievers who were language experts. And it used to be they were some of the best commentaries because they're just dealing with the original language. This is what this means. That doesn't mean they believe the theology behind it, but it's pretty straightforward what words, when it comes to grammar and syntax and context, mean. Again, it goes to the Twain, Twain point. Number seven, the trouble with the Bible is that it's most concerned with the glory of God. It's most concerned with the glory of God. We can make this one very simple. 
If there's only one God, then the only one God should be the only one who's treated as the only God. But back in the garden even, the sin of the first man and the first woman had to do with that. We're going to do what we want to do. It's an attack on the glory of God, on the authority of God, the godness of God. The problem with the Bible is, the trouble with the Bible is, it's most concerned with the glory of God. Salvation is most concerned with the glory of God. Ultimately, everything is for the godness of God to be seen and affirmed and acknowledged. It would be wrong if it wasn't that way. If there's only one God, he should be treated like he's the only one God. And that rubs us, sometimes even as Christians who know better, I kind of want the world to revolve around me. I want it to all be about me. Just a couple of texts to reference, and then we'll wrap up. Isaiah 48, verse 11, God says he won't share his glory with another. Then we get into... uh, salvation texts, uh, even our great salvation, like in Ephesians chapter 1, which is so amazing and awesome that it's sure in Christ, but it's to the praise of His glory and the glory of His grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Revelation five twelve. It's to the Lamb who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's just right to do. I look forward to that day when when we don't have any more struggles with sin in our own personal lives so we can be freed up to do what we were made to do, freed up to do what's natural and then supernatural, that we will do anything and everything that we do all for the glory of God. Remember, that's why we were made in His image and His likeness. To be in some ways like God. Not exactly like God, but in some ways to be like God. And that too was to glorify Him. I was astounded. Okay, the pastor comes home from vacation. He's got to talk about it. Here's my moment. Okay, Astounded, you know, to go to Universal Studios and to walk around and go, Are you kidding me? I mean, where where you have enough money and a human mind and minds to what, what people can do? I mean, it's just staggering. And we paid them for it, that's right. But <laughs> but I mean, you just walk and you go, have I just entered into... You walk around a wall and you walk into Harry Potter world and you think, have I just stepped into a time machine a couple hundred years and am I in England now? I mean, to the point where even the owls and the rafters that are fake have fake poop. (laughs) I mean, I mean... (laughs) Never said poop in a sermon before, but... (laughs) I mean, all of that to say, the human beings are amazing. Human, Human beings are absolutely amazing. And you know what's supposed to happen? And I'm not trying to be uber spiritual and the man and all this kind of stuff. What's supposed to happen is we're supposed to do great things, whether it be in medicine or in science or construction or architecture or astronomy or whatever it is. What's supposed to happen is we're supposed to do great things. And we're to then acknowledge the fact that we've been made in God's image. And he's made us like this. So even these details should give voice to God is glorious.
but we don't do it. But the world points toward this very thing. And the Bible emphasizes this in a great, great, great way. Finally, number eight, by way of conclusion, the trouble with the Bible is that it demands a response. It demands a response, and it demands a particular response. It's not Aesop's fables that demands imitation in some sort of strange way that's not even really known, or even as a book of virtues. The ultimate response the Bible demands, having shown everyone what's perfect, having shown inclusively that no one, no one, no one, no one meets the standard, the wonderful trouble with the Bible is, it says, and I'll quote Jesus, come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Not from a long day, but from sin, from traditionalism, from oppression, from all of the things that come from a troubled life in a broken world, living a broken life. He says, come to me. He's the answer. And coming to Jesus would be a synonym for believing in Jesus, resting in him. I will do it for you. And that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the perfect Savior. Thank you that he voluntarily went to Calvary to experience wrath, condemnation, and judgment. And thank you that he was raised from the dead, victorious, giving new life to everyone who believes in him. Lord, may we find ourselves today believing in him, resting in him. Indeed, he is good and powerful and able to save. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it convicts through the power of the Spirit. Thank you that it also points to the good news and proclaims the good news to our hearts and souls. In Jesus' name, amen.